0: Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band, Phil Graves. And we're here for our penultimate episode of 2020 to talk about maybe the best film ever made, the career of the sole creator of the best film ever made, and (laughs) spurious attempts by the likes of Pauline Kale and David Fincher's deceased father (laughs) Delegitimize the legacy of one George Orson Welles. (laughs) Great. Nailed it. (laughs) Sam, I'm sure as anyone with a film podcast and some sort of illusion of authority, you, like me and all the other people in the podcast community, have been watching Citizen Kane pretty much on repeat since the day you came out of the womb. Correct? (laughs) I wish I could say. Would that it were.
1: Um... (laughs) I saw Citizen Kane for the first time at the Prince
0: Charles about a month ago. Yes, I think it was like December the 3rd or so, whenever we got put into tier two in that week. I'd never seen it before. I'd always
1: said I wanted to see it for the first time in the cinema. That's not really an excuse considering you've seen it like 10 times in the cinema. Um... <laughs> I'm afraid I'm afraid so, bro. <laughs> but it was... I guess there's an obvious reason why I hadn't watched it, and that's because, you know, what do you do after you've seen the best film of all time? As I've learned, you go on to watch, you know, <laughs> Ben Wheatley's Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was sort of intimidated by the prospect and sure the myth and the legend of
0: Citizen Kane. I don't know. You've probably seen most of it in most of the frames or most of the moments in Citizen Kane in, like, cartoon form where... All the characters are yellow, though, presumably. That was a big thing. We went to see it with Darrell and he was like, oh, I can't believe how much of this shit is just like totally woven into the fabric of like 20th century culture or whatever. Yeah, of course. Be that in The Simpsons or just all types of shit. The whole structure of the film was totally like revolutionary. You know, we're going to get into it properly, all the different things about it. But safe to say you were horribly disappointed, right? (laughs) well i don't know there's no such thing as a a, or the
1: best film of all time you know they're simply oh can i say good movies and bad movies these are the sorts of debates we're gonna be getting into today (laughs) yeah i i don't know it's just a technical delight obviously and it was just a pleasure to watch it is a lovely film a fascinating film politically intriguing film. I thought you were going to say at the beginning, by the way, today we're going to be talking about the best film of all time and the worst film of all time. But you have
0: softened on on Mank a little bit, haven't you? If we'd recorded this podcast like two weeks ago, when all of film culture was in the grip of stage three Mank fever, both good <laughs> or bad, whether you're in the Robbie Collin camp crazy, <laughs> or you're with, you know, the real Gs like Will Sloan who think this film is a total aberration. I know which side I'm on. I haven't softened too much. I remember seeing you just after you'd watched Mank and The Magnificent Ambersons back to back and you seemed a little disappointed by one of those films. (laughs) I'm not pointing any fingers. I mean, we're going to talk about it. Or I guess all I would
1: say at this point is that I was less offended by Mank in the first instance than you were. Having become more acquainted with like a lot of the... I mean, this is the most vociferous film-critical debate that I've been exposed to, like questions about the authorship of Citizen Kane. It's an interesting film. We'll get into it. Magnificent Ambersons. Some people think it's better than Citizen Kane. Andre Bazin thinks they're you know equal. He wrote an interesting essay. The Great Diptych. Comparing their sort of formal and you know, thematic unities, or, you know, (laughs) again, we will get into this stuff later, but basically, because Wells didn't have, like, final cut on this one, it has a weird truncated feel, and I knew that going in,
0: but it also still affected my appreciation of it, like, when I was watching it. Do you think that if you had bore witness to the cake sequence, that was all filmed in, like, one reel of film with no cutaways, Mm. as it was intended by Wells but Robert Wise the director of The Sound of Music and also the editor of Citizen Kane put in all these inserts into the scene to make it a lot more conventional. One of many many instances of Kane getting the mank treatment himself and his masterpiece being ripped out of his hands. Wells. Yeah 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 or Booth <laughs> Booth, Tarkington exactly but let's get back to Citizen Kane because there's so much to fucking get into really. <laughs>
1: So where do you even start with this obvious masterpiece of a film? Um, I guess it's instructive to look first at the plot before we look at some of the sort of dazzling technical feats that Orson awesome Wells and Greg Toland and company achieved here. I don't even know what to say. I guess there is a man, certain man. Very good. And um, for the poor, yada yada. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. Orson <laughs> awesome Wells plays the main character. I mean, I guess, like, part of the myth of the film, as we'll get into, is that he, you know, wrote the movie, directed it, starred in it, you know, (laughs) like, did it all. He plays, like, a newspaper tycoon. At the beginning, it sort of sets up the sort of narrative parameters of the film. He dies at the beginning, and then a sort of faceless reporter is trying to uncover the meaning
0: of his last word.
1: Rosebud
0: literally faceless he's always shot against the light in that first sequence in the screening room where he's with uh his bosses and he's been told he's got to go find out what the meaning of the word that was the last thing he said it's shot so wonderfully in this like i guess it's supposed to be like rko yeah yeah, yeah. rko the studio who produced this film were also probably the biggest distributor of like cinema newsreels in america at the time mm. news on the march yeah as
1: well as being a scene which sort of establishes that technique of like the reporter character uncovering the truth like being a stand-in for the audience basically it also establishes two of like the wavy technical aspects of the film the news on the march sequence is insane it's like a montage how long does it go on for
0: i think it's probably about five minutes but it's a whole film
1: (laughs) i mean that feels it feels quite long yeah 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 Um, And it conveys so much information. And then the next scene, which is like basically a very like realistic smoky room, you know, Um, and we just like see it in like such a different way. And it really highlights like the different ways of like mediating, like (laughs) what's going on, which is like what we see then throughout the whole film.
0: You've got like the film breaking down like in persona. The idea is that like the newsreel is incomplete and these people need to work out or to tell a snappy piece of, yellow journalism in film form in the sort of burgeoning new style of information that was coming out in the 1940s as people were going to the cinema for their news more so than getting the newspapers. The film basically tells this story in a sort of grander way of like the birth and death of like a whole style of tabloid journalism in America and how that was tied into these industrialists and these billionaires. But that's only... One very specific way to look at this film, which like looking at a diamond, you can have many different perspectives on it, but it's very hard to see the whole thing through one pair of eyes, Mm. but it's just told in a fucking brilliant way. I guess it's sort of like Rashomon or some shit like that, you know? Sure. The story of his
1: life and like towards the meaning of Rosebud is like told through interviews with like people that he knew throughout his life. I guess just a note on like the casting, which is like a really important aspect of it. Like so many of the characters played in the film whose recollections make up the, you know, the narrative bulk of it. They're performers that Wells worked with at the Mercury Theatre where he made his name. Um, as like a dramatist and like a creative director, I guess, is like the term we'd use now.
0: Yeah, because this was the first film for people like Joseph Cotton and Agnes Moorhead. Wells and Hausman in the Mercury Theatre had done several like very legendary stage productions, including Cradle Will Rock. They were working on Richard Wright's native son pretty much concurrently with the production of this film. They did some classic Shakespeare adaptations, including the fascist Julius Caesar, and the all-black Macbeth. He basically brought this entire company. There's no, like, stunt casting or, like, celebrity cameos in this film, apart from the Forrest Gump-style sequence where they superimpose Kane standing next to Adolf Hitler. (laughs) Oh, my
1: God, yeah. (laughs) At the end
0: of this newsreel. But apart from that, it would have been pretty unrecognisable faces, despite having one very recognisable voice for people who may have heard the War of the Worlds broadcast and run out of their homes in total panic in 1938.
1: Yeah, I guess it's like hard to understand now the extent to which that did actually cause an insane panic. Like people freaked the fuck out in a major way, like running out to the hills and stuff, like um, fires on the plane or something, you know, when they don't know the war's ended and they're just like fucking munching each other on the hills and then someone comes
0: and is like, oh, the Martians haven't actually come. It was all, you know. I mean, Wells knew what he was doing though, yeah he, he is, if you listen to the broadcast it's like the martians have landed on the white house and they've you know eaten yeah. the president yeah i mean
1: that's why people couldn't believe when the pearl harbor bombings happened because like you know <laughs> wells trolled them too hard with this
0: that is that is deeply ironic because there's a big thing about this film that I think is very underrepresented in Pauline Cale and David Fincher's interpretation of the story, which was Wells was a pretty committed socialist. Definitely at this time, big anti-fascist, and he really, really wanted America to get involved with World War II. At this time, there was a lot of resistance to this from people like William Randolph Hearst.
1: This is like central stuff, man. The treatment of this material in Pauline Cale's Raising Cain, the bit of journalism, long form journalism that like first raised like major questions about the authorship of the film. Um, The treatment of politics is just like really off putting in a major way. Um, This is the period of like popular front resistance to fascism in the 30s. Um, and that's so important. And, you know, you spoke about Wells as, like, anti fash Julius Caesar and stuff like that. The federal theatre programmes in this period are, like, so interesting. Like, theatres were just, like, getting loads of money to make, like, subversive plays, basically, until there was, like, a turn, you know, like a sort of reactionary turn against that, ultimately, which, like, basically put pay to it with, you know, the earliest stages of communist witch hunts. Um, the treatment of this and Kale is just like not good. She treats this as like, you know, communists that are like selling out, having like attacked American democracy, and like she like talks with like real disdain about like Stalinists in Hollywood.
0: When she's writing for the New Yorker or whatever. But it's funny because even that in the Andrew Sarris book that we were reading when we were talking about John Ford, he was saying that like the least fashionable like pieces of work for him and like especially like coastal film critics in the 1970s were films like the Grapes of Wrath and these or like the Fugitive or whatever these like the more leftist like political things they were the ones that critics would take with the biggest pinch of salt over the more sort of poetic and less decidedly like engaged films one thing that's really worth checking out is around the same time as the Mercury Theatre Wells and John Houseman another very essential figure who i guess was the script editor on citizen kane um they did this sick radio show with uh, nicholas ray about 10 years before he made his first film it was on like national broadcast radio and they were putting on people like lead belly and woody guthrie to perform against these like socialist radio plays
1: that's really cool
0: better than i've forgotten his bloody name the dude who does rock on radio one these days but all these forms of media like all play into citizen kane right It jumps off with this idea once he's like first found his fortune, because like the land that he grew up on in Colorado has been bought out by this massive oil magnet. And then he's like sent around the world and like becomes incredibly rich. And he says, oh, I think it will be fun to run a newspaper. And then the first sort of half an hour of this film, you see the economic growth of said newspaper, which is predicated on like buying up the staff from the rival newspaper and running a bunch of fake news...
1: Yeah, having and having a more salacious approach to news and also a more reactive approach to news. I guess like a sort of precursor to twenty four hour news almost. This is all based on the life of William Randolph Hearst, as you said, and you know, I guess it is like a film made up of these like sort of references to, to real people.
0: At the time Cale was writing, Hearst was probably most famous as being the great-grandfather of Patty Hearst, who was, you know, that, like, millionaire heiress who was kidnapped by uh, a revolutionary group, who then, like, became a revolutionary herself. Infamous figure in, like, American news media in the 70s. Drawing a concurrent line with the fascist newspaper magnate played so well by Charles Dance in Mank. Wells's performance is just amazing, I think you never see his real nose or chin he's always wearing prosthetics but you see the man age
1: oh my god let me sorry let me read this quote right now go on, go uh, go. let me just get it
0: sorry oh yeah 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 was this in the bazan yeah,
1: yeah sorry there's a great quote um in andre bazan's also wells a critical study um translated by jonathan rosenbaum and published in the late 70s in english um wells on Exactly, this at a drop of a hat, Olivia clamps a false nose over his handsome proboscis. (laughs) So, how you say that? And I too, and I too strongly possess this tendency for all normal uses. My own nose is quite pleasant and fairly decorative. It stopped growing, however, when I was about 10 years old.
0: (laughs) But you never, in all of his film roles, you never really see his true face I think even in F for fake he's wearing some level of makeup when he's just like talking direct to camera and like
1: great I get yeah I guess um in uh, sort of writing on Wells like there are loads of takes on this like sort of psychoanalytical takes I I'm not interested I think he just was you know he was aware of the sort of transformative power of makeup throughout Kane we see him at various stages in his life. Obviously, famously made it when he was, what, 25 or some shit like that? Like, it's ridiculous.
0: We hadn't even started this podcast when we were 25. Yeah, <laughs>
1: there are a couple of scenes where he is like a young man, like in his 20s or whatever. But many of the times we see him, he's an old man, basically. And it's all done
0: through, you
1: know, stage makeup, I guess.
0: Which is true for some of the other characters as well. Um The Magnificent Ambersons, the film he made after, is also about telling a story that takes place over about 50 years and, like, synthesizes all these changes in, like, American life and society through one family. But I think what's really interesting about Kane is that this character has the power and wealth and influence to actually play a direct role in influencing people's imagination. So the testimony that you're seeing from all these sort of, like, secondary characters well first he reads from the memoirs of thatcher who's like the person who bought the mine that he grew up on then he goes to meet bernstein who was like his sort of assistant he has one failed and then one successful meeting with his second wife susan alexander who's just like a washed up like club entertainer and then also jed leland played by joseph cotton and his scenes where he's old and just in a in like a retirement home asking for Thompson to like sneak in cigars. And then you see him like in the next scene and he's like 20 years old and he's full of like vitality and spark and like energy. The aging and the makeup in this film really set a standard, I think. It's something that you're encouraged to almost scrutinize most of the time when you watch movies. Think of like the thing with like the Irishman last year or Gemini man or something like that. They're always used for like imaginary purposes as opposed to trying to convey an actual sense of realism which is obviously impossible. But I think it's pretty flawless, to be honest. How they did it with the yeah, I
1: was so impressed seeing it on the big screen. I think
0: it's really well done. I think
1: perhaps you're right that it requires a bit of suspension of disbelief. Pauline Kael, she's like quite critical, actually, of the the makeup. (laughs) and it's like it looks like shit up close which I really disagreed with actually because I think it casts a spell in like an effective way I guess the lighting and photography is like really important here and maybe we could talk about that for a little
0: bit in the closing credits you see the top half is like written produced and directed by Orson Welles and then it's like cinematography by Greg Toland and they have like the shared panel on the credits which is extremely rare never been done before Probably wasn't even really done again.
1: I think the same description can be applied to watching Citizen Kane after watching The Long Voyage Home and The Grapes of Wrath. Since like the mid-40s, maybe it hasn't really been approached like that. But um, yeah, (laughs) I guess my appreciation of Greg Coland's work does come from those Ford films that we looked at earlier this year. Just a real master obviously his name is like fully associated with Citizen Kane, Kano rather than the long voyage home even I guess Wells is like
0: advocates even they know that it's praiseworthy for that sort of cinematographical achievement as much as like the performance or the makeup or the epicness
1: yeah for sure they sometimes credit Toland or like it's more of a footnote and it's like Wells is like innovation to use like deep staging, deep focus to convey. I think what Bazan says is like, oh yeah, Toland like obviously was really important in deep focus cinematography, the development of it. But what Wells does is like a a lateral deep focus and it's like, hmm, isn't that the same? (laughs) you know it's like it's even deeper and wider
0: well it it kind of is right you get that that sequence where Kane is finishing off Leland's review and Leland comes in right at the back of the room and I think the quote from Mark Cousins who really like put this quite clearly to me when I was like 17 watching the story of film was Leland enters the room and he's as big as Kane's nostril or something like that yeah (laughs) right he's about 20 feet away but The wide angle lens it's like totally shrunk in the perspective
1: just another another great example of that is um the is it susan alexander her yeah sort of attempted suicide the overdose scene where in the foreground there's like a huge like empty bottle of pills or whatever
0: it must have been produced to be like oversized you know like the coffee cup in detour like yeah if you saw the real (laughs) maybe
1: Um, and then right in the background Wells like bursts through the door it's like dark in the room it's light outside the light pulls in and it's like crazy and he's like smaller than the bottle yeah it's just like crazy staging and it's all a one-up obviously
0: the other classic one I think the best and probably when you're watching the film the most like jaw-dropping is that sequence with Agnes Moorhead as his mother when he's like playing out in the snow in the backyard but you're looking at it through the house and the camera's always in the house and you're seeing like the parents talk with Thatcher about like what's going to happen to the boy and he, you just see him playing with uh, Redacted, his sled <laughs> and shouting the union forever and like, yeah. you know, playing like <laughs> reenacting the civil war or whatever by himself. This
1: staging just. is just amazing, yeah.
0: But you saw The Crime of Monsieur Lang recently for Film Club, right?
1: Yes. I picked it for Film Club, yeah.
0: Nice. And if you ask Bazan, if you ask me, that other great popular front socialist filmmaker who is, like, really important to the development of, like, deep focus. I think I even talked about this shit on the fucking Roy Anderson episode. It's all interlinked,
1: you know. Yeah, you're right, man. Le Marseillaise, which we recently watched, is, like, a, you know, a classic French popular front film. I think we'll have to talk about that properly at some point.
0: I love it. Maybe on the
1: Patreon. Um.
0: (laughs) Also, while we're on this Toland thing, I don't think he actually did shoot Stagecoach, did he? He didn't, but Wells famously, there's a good scene of this in uh, RKO 284, the other sort of fictionalized Orson Welles making Citizen Kane biopic that was made for HBO in the 90s starring Liev Schreiber. You've got a scene of him forcing everyone to watch Stagecoach because this is what he's supposedly going after. And also, yeah, if you watch The Long Voyage Home or The Grapes of Wrath, which Toland worked on the year before, it's crazy to think of how much work these people got done in the film industry at this time. Like, technical people would often make, like, five or six unbelievable films every year.
1: Yeah, it's mad. Um, sorry, just one quote on that um, bit of apocrypha about Wells, you know, doing, like, 40 screenings of Stagecoach during the production of this. Um, Kale writes, Why should Orson Welles have studied Stagecoach? and come up with a film that looked like The
0: Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh my god. <laughs> it just misses the mark so deeply. Yeah, it's not like John Ford ever saw the film Sunrise and that completely changed <laughs> yeah, his approach course. to filmmaking or anything like that. Um, the German Expressionist thing is huge, but we'll get into it later, especially because that compares quite a lot to like, other films he made, like The Trial and uh, Mr. Arkadin specifically. Um, You recently saw in the cinema, um, before they closed again,
1: How Green Was My Valley?
0: I did. I felt like uh, an Academy Award voter in 1941. I saw them (laughs) very, very close together. Um, I would still, you know, I don't think it's as clear cut as saying Citizen Kane is the greatest film of all time. I definitely cried more in How Green Was My Valley. I also would say there's probably more ceilings in that film than there are in Citizen Kane, which is supposedly another of the great breakthroughs is shining ceilings
1: both the interiors and the exteriors of how green was my valley you know have extraordinary depth and breadth and yeah you know, it is a beautiful film i wish i'd seen it the cinema um sorry what did you want to go on to
0: i'm so scandalized by that pauline kale quote you just read i just might need a minute to yeah <laughs> to decompress. god what a fucking idiot what i was gonna say is for the career of greg toland you want to look at one of the other most brilliant american world war ii or wartime films the best years of our lives directed by william wyler which came out in 1945 absolutely heartbreaking it's about twice as long as citizen kane but you gotta watch it still the deep focus in that there are some like almost more like altman-esque sequences where there's like three different conversations happening at the same time and like different levels of depth in these sequences and oh god yeah i think that's the middle scene where the dude who doesn't have any hands is like playing the piano it's fucking crazy
1: i've got to watch it man
0: almost a more mad achievement we'll, we'll do it for the patreon soon i guess um cool <laughs> in terms of staging and deep focus that i would say is like sorry i'm doing hand signals right now um, that's cool the zenith right yeah cool. <laughs> for Tolan's approach which you won't see again until like playtime or like anderson or something like that
1: i think well we'll get into how pauline kale and andre bazan's approaches to the authorship of Citizen Kane represent like two sort of opposites on the sort of critical spectrum. Um, but I think how they talk about Wells's use of deep focus in Citizen Kane is also instructive. For Kale, um Wells, this is a quote, used deep focus not for a naturalistic effect, but for startling dramatic effects. And it's coercive and artificial and all these like sort of quite negative like adjectives Bazan on the other hand interprets this type of framing as you know I guess almost transcendental and like containing psychological meanings (laughs) you know which is what we would say like the camera you know communicates these sort of things and like goes far beyond what dialogue or like single components of a film can
0: communicate you know, it's all part of like a concerted, communicative effort. I mean, Kale like Last Tango in Paris and shit, so I just can't even <laughs> begin, you know, all those 10 minute sex scenes. Ugh. Um I mean, you know what you know what team I'm in, man. It's, this is a very specific lens through which to view like one of the most complex and written about films of all time. But it's certainly one of the, the deep staging, I think, is one of the many, many reasons why I keep on coming back to this film and watching it again and again. Because there are new things to take from it. And it's a really good film to see in the cinema. It gets projected a couple of times a year.
1: Yeah, we watched quite a bad copy, actually, didn't we? <laughs>
0: it's true. It's probably the one that's on iPlayer now and along with the Magnificent Ambersons will be for at least a year, I think. Mm. So where's your excuse, listener, if we're not selling the film to you through these sort of rigorous analytical debates about cinematography? There's always new stuff to take from it. This time around, what I would say for the Prince Charles' favourites, is their sound system is pretty fucking good, actually, despite this being like extremely mono, as Mank is. And the music is pretty quiet, I'd say, more so than your standard sort of melodrama from Hollywood.
1: It's Bernard no Tireman, isn't it? It is,
0: it yeah. is. But there's so many jokes, little bits, you know, when... I think it's Bernstein who says to him like you're going to lose a million dollars a year on this paper and then Kane says like I know that means we'll have to quit in 60 years and then there's this this tiny little muted trumpet going like bum, 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 bum. <laughs> Yeah I
1: feel like I'd need to watch it again for an analysis of the sound to be honest.
0: I'm surprised you haven't already but yeah it's, it's terrific way better than the sound in Mank.
1: <laughs> yeah I guess beyond the obvious aesthetic qualities of of Citizen Kane, there are loads of interesting social aspects and political aspects to discuss. Definitely. I guess we alluded to the sort of popular front uh, genealogy of Wells's theatre projects in the 30s and leading up to this film. Uh, Citizen Kane is a politician as well as a newspaper man or a, a wannabe politician, I guess. Unlike Hearst, who did actually win some political offices,
0: the Kane character, you know, fails. It's so funny because his first wife is, like, the niece of the president, yeah. yeah. And from the age of, like, 20 in this film, people are like, maybe you're going to be the president one day. (laughs) Yeah, classic. It's so written into, like, the plot of the film, obviously from the fucking newsreel, but even despite that, like, it feels so logical as a way to, like extend your influence or whatever but beyond that it's not they don't even say like why it would be good or bad for him i mean his politics are very like they're populist but they also like shift and change and they're quite complicated you know
1: yeah but that's the nature of populism he's just like oh, i oh, look out for you, you know. like Sure, sure, sure. It's just, like, a <laughs> very generic, like, there are no, like, sort of campaign promises to speak of.
0: The only thing he campaigns about is to, like, lock up Boss Jim oh, Getty, yeah. <laughs> his, his rival. That's all he's saying is, like, oh, he's going to send him to jail. Like, it's enough of these corrupt... Because, like, he'd successfully taken on, like, these traction funds and oil magnets through his, like very aggressive newspaper or whatever so that's the only way he can like be political he's not gonna like actually talk to like his workers or whatever that's one of the most famous scenes in the film because it's just so breathtakingly shot supposed to be like one of these rallies at like madison square garden or whatever he's just going mad
1: (laughs) yeah i guess we'll get to the sort of counterpoint in Mank, which looks at Is it Upton Sinclair? Is that the guy's name?
0: Upton Sinclair. He wrote um, the novel that "There Will Be Blood" is based upon. Oil, sick book.
1: Yeah, I wasn't really familiar with his life and work, but um, well, in Mank he's represented as like a sort of past it Bernie Sanders organizer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, Bernie Sanders. Um and like, you know, you see people like sort of like leaning against the lampposts yawning in the foreground while he's like talking to like a small group of people in the in the background, like
0: that whole sequence is illuminated only by like fucking trash cans on fire, man.
1: Yeah, we'll talk about <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later.
0: Riff. Okay. The best book I've read on Citizen Kane and I have conducted like a bit of a like a Literary review over the last couple of weeks, all stuff I'd like come across before, or, like had on the shelves. There's so much written about it, but this BFI monograph by Laura Mulvey, which I guess is from the 90s, it's from
1: 1992. Good year, fine vintage.
0: Yeah, we got Sam Story and we got the BFI Laura Mulvey monograph, as well as like being like sort of Freudian reading of a lot of these themes. Great. Um, what what I think. <laughs> What I think is really sick about this book is she, like, explores the politics of isolationism, which is a big reason as to why Wells, certainly, if not Mac, wanted to make the film in 1941. And how you visualize, like, from the very start, Kane, like, in this... Enormous palace. It was going to be called Alhambra, but then they changed the name to Xanadu, I guess to make it more mythical. Where he's bought up all the sort of artifacts of like the old European world and like all these statues and paintings and stuff like that. But he's just alone and is supposed to sort of visualize what would happen to the world if america continued to pursue these like isolationist policies like at greater cost to like everyone else you know she like explores that quite a lot against the sort of freudian reading
1: yeah it sound it does sound cool man the freudian aspect can't say it's particularly tantalizing but it's such an interesting period in american history i guess it must have been interesting for greg toland to go from making the grapes of wrath to this
0: december 7th,
1: <laughs> to, december 7th to this um which present like well Grapes of Wrath is about um, migrant workers Mm -hmm. and, like, waiting for Roosevelt to sort of relieve them, basically, and, like, the film version, like, at least, like, sort of obliquely looks at these national protection programs and stuff like that and the related labor issues and experiences whereas this firstly it's like an urban setting um but it does look at like similar issues and anxieties in the period
0: definitely i mean there's that great speech from leland when he says to wells like Wells says like the people think what i tell them to think and then there's that amazing speech from leland where he says like oh when people realize that like this stuff is their right and not your like gift then that's going to turn into like organised labour which you're not going to like very much like really exposes the flaws in his like populist politics before he runs for governor or anything like that
1: The characterization of Kane is interesting especially in relation to um his like main and like real analogue Hurst mm-hmm. who you know was reprehensible on numerous levels really um,
0: Yeah he was an enormous fascist.
1: Yeah like a rampant sort of media capitalist, you know. But the way that Wells sort of human... I I wouldn't attribute this entirely to the script, although there are aspects of it that function to humanise him. So much of it comes from the performance and the framing. Mm. It's just such a nuanced uh, representation of, like, an extremely problematic public figure type, which, like, it could have been way easier to, like, make him, like, completely despicable or well, they wouldn't have made him entirely likeable because it would have been impossible. But
0: (laughs) I think part of that is because of the framing narratives and stuff like that, though, and how, you know, there's a couple of scenes that you see told from like different perspectives at different points in the film. And it's a story that's told by even like his worst enemies or whatever, or people whose lives he ruined, like Susan Alexander, like it's only their like specific take on him that they're giving to this like newsreel reporter, right, for the most part. They don't interview, apart from like Leland is the closest you get to like a sort of, or like he's the least sycophantic, but he like went around the world and they were like buddies who like their private connection was like corrupted or whatever. But you never get the man on the streets. No way. The reason that he falls in love with Susan is because she's like, his words like a cross section of the American people Mm -hmm. or whatever. Maybe (laughs) this is a good time to read that Saris quote that we just looked at. What did he say in his, you know, classic American cinema book that we reference all the time? Beautiful piece on Wells. Is he in the Pantheon? He sure is. He's in tier yeah, one. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> Says like, Wells is concerned with the ordinary feelings of extraordinary people, whereas Hitchcock is concerned with the extraordinary feelings of ordinary people, right? To go on to make films about like, full Staff for one, which we've talked about on this podcast before, Citizen Kane. So big us up. Chimes at Midnight as it's known here yeah true or touch of evil which is like such a nihilistic portrayal of like america in its relationship to mexico and you do have kane in like longer versions of this script you don't get it acknowledged that much but in direct parallel to hearst you've got kane like starting the spanish-american war with cuba to sell newspapers touch of evil opens with a very famous tracking shot like traveling across the border But the character played by Wells is like the most awful, corrupt, nasty, villainous character he ever played. But even he has his like tender moments. I guess it's born out of the theatre for the most part. It's more than David Fincher ever did for (laughs) characterisation. can't begin to represent all the different shades of critical debate about this stuff. Um, and we will get on to talking about Mank pretty soon. But Citizen Kane. It's a it's a great movie. Five bags of popcorn. <laughs> I would recommend reading into the sort of Sartre, Borges uh, reactions to it. And Wells is, you know, Wells is talking about Citizen Kane for his whole life. He's like Nas, you know, or like The Stroke. or <laughs> one of these people who made like a total masterpiece at the start and that was an albatross
1: well pauline kale went on to say that in raising kane that uh wells is
0: the greatest
1: loser of american cinema damn uh, <laughs> to sum up his i mean she was writing that in the 70s to sum up his career since citizen kane um andrew Sarris writing in the late 60s mm-hmm. when pretty much all of the films we've discussed have come out basically says that Wells is indisputably the greatest younger about like director going. So, you know, sure, <laughs> lots of different perspectives on Wells's later work.
0: Yeah. Borges said like, he's going to be a maker of great films that no one watches in the future, like Podovkin or Griffith. Whatever.
1: Perceptive. Um, <laughs> I do love Borges. Sorry, Borges.
0: Um, <laughs> Oh yeah, and Wells' response is like, wait, the man is half blind, you know, or something. (laughs) I watched
1: F for Fake for the first time. What a movie. Yeah. Hadn't really seen anything like it, to be honest. I guess some people think it basically invented the video essay as a form. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, It basically has Wells as himself, you know, wearing a big black coat and a big black fedora. Um, <laughs> going around various locations, and he's got
0: the cane from Citizen Kane with him as well, man. He's got the brilliant, <laughs>
1: and it's like a sort of thesis, I guess, on art forgery and authorship of of art.
0: Oh, I love it so much when he says Chartres Cathedral doesn't have a signature on it or whatever. Yeah, that's a really cool sequence. Oh. But also, the whole movie is a fucking prank. It's like a a magic trick or an illusion. yeah <laughs> it's like a fake story about forgers. you know, I watched Zed and Two Norughts recently, which is also about a Vermeer forger doing like crazy shit they're not qualified to do. but this guy who did all these fake Picassos and then Clifford Irving, who wrote the Howard Hughes book, it's just a super funny plot, you know, especially to be recounted in this sort of like fake documentary
1: yeah it intersperses Wells's like you know direct address to the camera about art and forgery mm. and you know artifice in film and in life and in artworks with yeah sort of documentary footage of this um what's his name Elmere yes <laughs> and Clifford Irving like uh you know. In, in action, like, talking about the stuff. It's really formally unusual. It also has this technique of, like, stopping the, uh, sort of, supposedly, documentary footage in a freeze frame mm. Um as a way, I guess, of, like, sort of further manipulating the meaning of this footage. Oh, yeah, like, we, really can't, we can't
0: show you anymore because it would ruin the argument we're trying to make here or whatever. <laughs> it's also got Oya Koda who also appears on the other side of the wind, which we'll definitely have to bring up in a bit but he made that around the same time as Pauline Kale was writing sorry I've said her name so many times already and it's gonna yeah be said. we've
1: rinsed <laughs> it it's cool we're gonna say it many more times
0: fuck Pauline Kale, all my homies hate Pauline Kale. <laughs> she did write a really really good essay about Cary Grant which I love but I guess Raising Kane was like her some like serious you know academic research or whatever as opposed to magazine journalism mm. but Wells made F a Fake around the same time and it was the last film he made after years and years of going around Europe with his hat in his hands you know being absolutely ridiculed by Hollywood and like American press he didn't make shit you know he'd appear in things like Moby Dick or Transformers yeah. the movie a bit later in these cameos but that was largely to fund the more sort of outre work that he was trying to complete mm. in Europe and he's got dozens of incomplete films that are still you know that he tried to make a little bit of chimes of midnight for example he shot at the same time as like an adaptation of treasure island that he promised he would make so they shot all that on the same set just so he could receive the budget Damn. to make his like shakespeare film or whatever. that's mad he did make a, a cool tv pilot called the fountain of youth which i just saw recently which i recommend people check out but for the most part he was working in europe having been sort of condemned to obscurity either by him being sort of profligate in people's imagination or also just being too ambitious or being punished for being one of the only artists to ever be given like final cut in a contract by a studio making the best film ever and <laughs> you know they can't ha- they can't allow that to happen you know
1: yeah for sure he really <laughs> was ostracized for like numerous reasons but that i think that's an important one like he said, uh a precedent which just couldn't be matched again. Yeah, I'd really never seen anything like F for Fake. Uh, I guess it is formally revolutionary to a certain extent. Perhaps also drawing on, like, televisual form as well. In terms of precedent, I guess it's just because it's such a weird mix of, like, documentary and, you know, it really, like, blurs the lines in a sort of playful way. Mm-hmm. Just uh, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum in terms of, uh, I guess, what it's doing and when it's from, we also watched Too Much Johnson, Wells's first film. Obviously, um, Citizen Kane's famously his first film. Before he made it, he wanted to make an adaptation of Heart of Darkness. At RKO, and there are a few other projects which were ultimately written off before they settled on making Citizen Kane.
0: Heart of Darkness would have been mad because it was all first-person perspective, like a video game or like peep show. Yeah, it would have been
1: brilliant, but it was too risky. Basically, so they made um, Citizen Kane. (laughs) A film which antagonised one of the most powerful people in America. Um, (laughs) Too Much Johnson, though, is really interesting. It survives in a weird form. I think we basically watched a working copy, which is a composite of all the extant footage. It was lost for, like, 80 years or something before turning up in a warehouse in Italy. It was first seen in, like, 2013, basically, or 2014, perhaps, at at a film festival.
0: That's right, yeah. It's so mad that it was, you know an extant piece of film directed by Orson Welles but that was the first screening of it. It was supposed to be projected in a theatre. They made three short films to be screened before the acts yeah. of this like comedy play that Welles directed but it turned out the ceilings in the theatre were too low so they couldn't even screen it the film. they anyway.
1: wanted to do something really quite formally radical for the time though to um, basically yeah. Yeah, to juxtapose live performance with um, a film which sort of demonstrates the sort of technical possibilities of, of film you know especially the this chase sequence um which is sort of like either safety last or something like that
0: definitely more lloyd than Chaplin or keaton for example but it also kind of looks like the man with a movie camera yeah it's, cra- <laughs> it's so crazy like...
1: um, the copy we watched though as i said it's like all the extant footage just like together so you see like it's not like watching a film you see um Mm. the same shot happen like three times basically and it's like cool
0: (laughs) with like scene missing bits like yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah. but it's just a fascinating artifact nonetheless
0: it's so ambitious for just like a sort of knockabout, like three act comedy about cuckoldry or whatever you've got this Mm. like how long is that chase sequence? Like 40 minutes? Oh my god. It goes...
1: Nah, it's not that long, but it's like, <laughs> it's long. It's like half an it's hour, like, surely. Like Yeah, it must be like two reels or something. Sure.
0: But it's, you know, he's, he's like lifting a ladder up this really tall building and it's all shot from like similar angles that are used in Citizen Kane. This is the point I wanted to make.
1: Yeah. There's so much depth. You're seeing the action happening on the roof from the street and you can see things happening in between people carrying goods from vans to their warehouses or whatever
0: but did Orson Welles invent neorealism <laughs> maybe we don't have enough footage to tell I guess this is the same year as Tony by Renoir anyway duh, duh, duh. um Too Much Johnson I only saw it for the first time this year I think it's fucking jokes the title is obviously just incredible yeah. especially for living in the UK when we do now it's really a film for our times
1: Hundred percent. It's a silent film as well, and it has like a very specific, like liminal feel, I guess like because of its um intended like distribution format of like playing it with live actors, like reciting dialogue like around it or
0: whatever. Would have been super cool. Mm. But he did have a immense visual flair and like had that sort of European influence to his filmmaking more than uh Hart or Griffith. Griffith had quite a similar life to Kane as well. So I think they're actually quite sort of uh, analog figures. He lived like, he was like a very like disgraced, like isolated old man at the end of his life. Probably part of the influence for writing Kane as well as Hearst. Too much Johnson. Check it out, folks.
1: You can watch it. Um, There's like an American film preservation digital archive where you can watch Mm -hmm. it and a edited version, which I think comes in about half an hour. So it loses half of the excellent footage. And it also has lots of interesting notes. I think we'll probably link that in the episode description so you can watch it there.
0: But I guess it wasn't that woman whose name I've mentioned many times. She didn't get to see it, right? So it does make sense. (laughs) Are we going to go towards talking about Mank now?
1: I think that's a good idea. Yeah.
0: And now, listeners, the moment you've all been waiting for as we get off talking about this boring old white man's boring old black and white movie (laughs) from the 40s. And instead, we talk about the latest piece of lit Netflix content. (laughs) Yeah. We watched *Mank*. I'd spent the whole year sort of like anxiously excited for it because I thought the trailer was two jokes and just like... I just felt like it was going to be an abomination, to be honest. I already knew it was based off this shit that I'd really objected to anyway. But I don't intend to like David Fincher movies that much Mm. or Gary Oldman. And after 2018's The Other Side of the Wind completion slash like mutilation, depending on how you feel about it. Mm. I personally loved it. It's just a bit mad for Netflix to be making this film just a year down the line from a film that like, showed Orson Welles' genius to be something worth revisiting and trying to celebrate and expand upon. Sam, what did you think of Mank? <laughs>
1: well, I thought quite a lot about it.
0: You saw Citizen Kane first, right? You watched that before you watched Mank? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good.
1: Watch Mank a few days after. So Mank is about Herman Mankiewicz, the co-credited screenwriter of Citizen Kane, and it's very heavily drawn from Pauline kale's article that we've discussed, I guess, at length by this point. Yes. Raising Kane. First published across two issues of The New Yorker in February 1971. And then published the same year in a book form as the Citizen Kane* script, I think. And it included a copy of one of the versions of the
0: script yes I've got that in the big printed it's the shooting script not the uh, transcription of the film or whatever mm. as far as Lee one of the reasons Wells didn't want to like take her to court was because like it appeared in something that he was receiving a lot of royalties for you know
1: <laughs> it's an interesting book I guess it, it's worth talking about the source material here because it's very much so that before we actually talk about mank as a film mm-hmm. and you know discusses its- its merits, I guess. Kale was basically trying to sort of rehabilitate the reputation of Mankovitz, Mank, um, and his involvement in the film. And to like stress its importance, I think this is, I mean, this is very clearly rooted in like an affinity with the sort of newspaper men turned screenwriters of the 1930s whose films she privileged over like sort of more, I guess, arty
0: films. <laughs> Sure, she loved like his girl Friday, for example, which was uh, originally written by like Perelman and Ben Hecht, for example. Mm. I would say that arguably, instead of trying to rehabilitate Mank, as we will henceforth refer to him, yeah, I'm she was trying to bring she, down. She was trying to bring down Orson Welles, yeah, 100 percent, man. Like that's yeah. that's definitely the tone of raising Kane is, yeah, like any great Pauline K article it's extremely aggressive and uh, not nuanced.
1: One thing that really jumps out to me reading it, is these various references to how Mank was like sort of playing a joke on Wells, like, you know, playing like sort of like slave revolt, sort of, you know, playing tricks on this like perceived like mm-hmm. genius or whatever, like including tantrums for the Kane character and stuff like that. Sure. Um, and yeah, she just trash talks the whole time basically. And yeah, as I said, she sides herself with the writers And Mank is, like, really a very loyal adaptation of it, basically. It depicts uh, the sort of writing process as she envisions and describes it. A process in which Wells was almost
0: completely absent. Apart from the bit where he throws a tantrum in Mankiewicz. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. she says, she says, oh, Wells probably made suggestions in his early conversations with Mankiewicz. And since he received copies of the work weekly while it was in progress at Victorville, he may have given advice by phone or letter, but then it's like, but... um, (laughs) I guess Jonathan Rosenbaum has been important in uh, sort of refuting the sort of, The claims made by by Kel in in this famous article.
0: Shout out the patron saint. Love you, J-Roy. Yeah. Every time.
1: The same year in 1971 in Film Comment, he wrote uh, an article, I missed it at the movies. reference to Kel's, I lost it at the movies. Objections to Raising Cain.
0: Should have called it shallower into movies if you ask me, but that's...
1: uh... (laughs) Yeah, wow, great. Um, (laughs) And... Yeah, he just tries to strike a more balanced view of um, Wells and Mag's respective contributions to it. There's a article by this guy Carringer um, in the late '70s which looks at the scripts and, like, you know, highlights the the main interventions made by Wells. Yeah,
0: it does what she totally failed to do by looking at all the different published and archival versions of the yeah, script. Yeah,
1: doing some source analysis. Yeah, <laughs> 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 and yeah, basically. I guess the fact of the matter is that (laughs) Mankiewicz did, like, write it, broad strokes, as basically accumulation of, like, all this, like, gossip about Hearst. Yeah. And then over time, over this drafting process, Wells, like, trimmed a lot, moved things around, redistributed dialogue, made dialogue pithier, condensed things into montage, all these, like, really instrumental things in, like, constructing both Kane as a character and the sort of form of the film.
0: Definitely. And is clearly responsible looking at this uh, Carringer article for like a lot of the things that are most indelible about this film, such as the breakfast montage. He cut about a hundred pages of screenplay into just one scene (laughs) as you're seeing him and his first wife's relationship disintegrate over the course of like three or four breakfasts. Um, And also the opera house scene, which isn't in manx thing even though like rosebud and like the stuff of him in colorado and news on the march these are all elements to his screenplay there's also a load of things that didn't make it in that wells cut out which sound pretty fascinating actually like a sort of murder plot and
1: um sort of byron-esque or origin story
0: in rome right um, and with like sort of orgies and menageries and (laughs) yeah there's a there's a really good sounding scene that took place in a brothel that was excised right at the last minute I think they did actually shoot that Um, oh
1: yeah as a sort of haze code situation
0: yes but also yeah as opposed to him being surrounded by lesbians quote (laughs) but yeah there's also this like element which is like based off Hearst where his son is like a clansman or like just a real like white power guy who then dies in, like, a terrorist incident where they're trying with, like, an armed militia in some city in the South. All of these things that would have made Kane, like, a four-hour movie, the kind of movie people seem to think it is. Yeah. But also just way more simplistic and based off Hearst.
1: Yeah. The point to take here, though, is that it's it was collaborative. Mank like, did do the fleshing out at the beginning, but it was collaborative, you know. Um, I guess there are some people that would go really on either side of the argument that would be erroneous you know kale obviously as we see through the story of netflix's um, mank presents it very one-sidedly as like authored by herman mankovitz and that's what we see
0: but that also serves a huge purpose in what like what sort of arguments she was trying to make in a broader sense by like celebrating trash to be as if it were art, which I think is fundamentally untrue, because I think you got to, like, look at all... Not just look at films on their own terms, but, like, why can't Trash be art as well? Mm. A, for for the first... And so, like, trying to bring down, like, one of the most celebrated, like, artistic films is obvious, you know, it's a, it's a sitting duck or whatever. It would be an easy target. Also, having very public debates with Andrew Sarris and Molly Haskell, people who had, like, more auteurist angles on... You know, Hollywood history specifically, because Cale didn't really like a lot of these European films anyway. (laughs) But the point that she's trying to make is like an easy point to make or whatever, regardless of whether it's true or not. Yeah, I think that the
1: writers give this (laughs) sort of essential spirit to Hollywood films. Sure. That is the thesis of the film. Mank is fully the protagonist.
0: Yes. Played by Gary Oldman.
1: Yeah, way older than, than old Herm was at the time. Mm. I mean, I think he was like 40. Sure. Uh, and, you know, he was a bit like a sort of chubby Jewish guy. Not Gary Oldman. It's an interesting casting choice, and it, I think it like certainly inflects the...
0: Well, mate, it puts the, it within the, the,
1: the, the... thesis, you know.
0: It puts it within the Academy Awards continuum, you know, because he just won an <laughs> award for playing Churchill, so like now here's another sort of biopic where Gary Oldman can do his thing and hopefully bring some awards home to uh, everyone's favourite movie platform. Yeah. This film is filled with like rubbish English actors. It's got the guy from the fucking <laughs> Souvenir playing Orson Welles. It's also got... yeah. What's her name? Uh, Lily Collins, who I think is in The Crown or some shit. She was terrible, <laughs> straight up.
1: Yeah, I. Yeah, some really nothingy characterizations in in here. <laughs> I don't know. There are a few cool moments. I I guess it represents like the the writers' room. Um, you know, there's a pretty joke scene with uh, Sternberg, which like sort of hammers home the like anti ocher or like arty continentally flavored film thesis, dude, um, where
0: he's like a zombie, and they're all like trying to trying to get him to make Frankenstein. What the fuck was that scene about? The man was making fucking the Scarlet Empress at this time or whatever. I don't know why no. they picked Steinberg What what the hell point were they trying to prove? Let alone in the scene before and like you know, George.
1: Because es- Kyle trashes him, man. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. That's the <laughs> sure. reason.
0: But the scene in the scene before, right? Where they're all, like, smoking cigarettes and, like, uh, drinking whiskey in the writer's room. And there's just, yeah, like... Yeah,
1: and they've got, like, a burlesque sort of... they got, like, a naked woman... clamp like... typist.
0: <laughs> yeah. Why not? There were bare female screenwriters in Hollywood at this time. Like, Anita Luz was the first fucking person to ever write a screenplay in hollywood and there were dozens and dozens and dozens of women like writing screenplays in hollywood in the studio system in the 30s
1: it's a really important point to make (laughs) it's vital
0: from the jump off i was like what (laughs) louis b Mayer is a is a big character in this film as is thorberg um yeah we've read a lot about old hollywood in this year and how would like you've come across Mayer? Several times, presumably, in your reading. Yeah, of course. How would you characterize Louis B. Mayer versus, like, how is he characterized in this film?
1: (laughs) Well, he was obviously an instrumental, like, entrepreneurial figure in the development of old Hollywood. Yes, absolutely. And that obviously denotes a level of shrewdness, acumen. Uh, uh, These are things that I hate to acknowledge because, really, to my values, anathema. Sure. But... At the same time, like, you can't deny that these are like, in in, in Mank Mayer's like a, like an idiot. Yeah. To whom Irving Thorberg explains what's happening around him. Yeah. It's a weird depiction. And again, I think it's just designed to like, show that like, look, the, the money men, the producers, they're like, idiots. Everyone's an idiot, apart from the writer, because the writer's right. the smart guy. I'm a writer too, by the way.
0: (laughs) Jack Fincher.
1: Yeah, and Kale. Like, that's the whole thesis.
0: But it's totally dishonest, man, because Louis B. Mayer was, like, a tyrant. This is, like, the number one, like, defining thing that everyone says about him, that he was, like, absolutely horrible to, like, everyone who worked for him. Like, actors, directors, crew. Like, he ran, like, a really, like, ruthless company, right? And to put him in this... I guess it's to, like... It's really mad. To put him as just sort of, like... Hurst's sidekick in this film or whatever <laughs> yeah. or just his like side companion just so you can write a scene where you're making him into like the Bernstein character in Citizen Kane and he gets to like do this fucking month like recite the like one of the most beautiful moments in Citizen Kane where he talks about like seeing this woman on a ferry and like there isn't a he saw her for like five seconds but there isn't a month goes by where he hasn't thought about her just so you can like fucking visualize that in like a horrible looking like They use a really weird lens for that shit. It looks like fucking trash, and to make him out to be more like the Bernstein character in Citizen Kane, just so you can write that scene. (sighs) I get the impression that this film is like pretty slavishly devoted to the first draft screenplay by like Jack Fincher or whatever. In a way, Citizen Kane is certainly not to the first draft of its screenplay by Herman Mankiewicz. I mean, (laughs) because
1: it's revisionist history.
0: You know, it treats. Kale's journalistic writing
1: which is you know completely anecdotal half the time yeah as real testimony and it dramatizes that it's successful in doing that i'd say but it is revisionist history <laughs> but it's at a huge expense yeah when these characters are reduced to like weird caricatures what are you trying to achieve
0: here the main like piece of dishonesty about this film that i think is truly unforgivable but because it conforms to the agenda that it's trying to tell the whole thing I was talking about, about like isolationist politics, Hearst was a fascist and you get absolutely no indication of that in this film.
1: There's a dismal dinner party scene where all the politics of the film and its characters are laid out or sorry, it's a sort of post dinner party, like sort of soiree where they're all in leather armchairs, you know, and mayor it's what year is that meant to be like 36, 37, 38 even. Yeah. Um, Meyer and um Thorberg are like sitting on a couch together and I think Mank is drawing attention to like, you know, the development of like concentration camps mm-hmm. in Europe and Meyer's like, What's a concentration camp? It's like
0: Come on. <sighs> Come on. Honestly But then apparently Mank is like an anti fascist because he like in this totally fictitious anecdote by his like German maid, like he brought over a whole village to escape from that's the only mention of fucking anyone doing anything like in a sort of act of international solidarity in this whole film and it's fiction when there's actually countless examples of it even in Herman mankovich's life that are fact
1: oh yeah he's supposed to have sponsored the um entry of many refugees yeah. into the united states That's like a fascinating story. That should have been the film. Or better still, it should have been what adaptation is to The Orchid Thief. And treated with the sort of irreverence and irony and sort of interrogative spirit that 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 does. Raising Cain is a text that like demands interrogation, not like literal acceptance. And that's what this film represents.
0: I mean, Kaufman's obsessed with Pauline Cale, right, as well. His, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> you yeah. yeah. Know, like, Meryl is so similar to Pauline Kale in adaptation, in a way, you know, the Susan Orlean, yeah, uh, yeah. has similar mannerisms.
1: One thing I really didn't like was the device of, like, having the scene headings, script style, typeface, oh. like, come up at the beginning of scenes. <sighs> Dude, should have had Jesse Buckley doing a Pauline Kael impersonation. Would have been great. Instead, like...
0: (laughs) Would have been great. Or John Malkovich doing his Mankovich impression in RKO 281 or whatever. Cool. did it suck? Yeah, it was rubbish, but it was better than this. It was better than this. Way better. Way more interesting. Had way more of, like, Toland and Wells and shit. Yeah,
1: nice. (sighs) Lots of lip service
0: to, like, famous writers. Just for a second, can we talk about the fucking cigarette burns? Ugh on your netflix on your ipad like why the hell would you bother and it happens every single time every 16 minutes or whatever like we fucking get it <laughs> it's...
1: i i mean let's talk about the aesthetics it's shot in black and white not very 30s-ish black and white
0: i'd say or sure. late 30s 40s oh, it's widescreen It's like,
1: yeah i mean it looks like i watched the structure of crystal like a month ago mm um Zinisi film mm-hmm. uh i really loved it actually and i guess the the way they use like or the way the stock picks up light i know it's digital but <laughs> it's mad it's mad different but... it looks different
0: yeah but even like uh watchmen twin peaks the return are shot in exactly the same format in mm. their black and white bits they look way better than this film man so do mm. like some of the hong films that
1: yeah, I think it's just a better understanding of like contrast even like it just didn't seem
0: particularly vivid and it comes at a huge expense for the deep focus cinematography, <laughs> the framing in this film, because yeah. you get no sense of depth in any of these shots, even when you can even when you're looking at the fucking ceiling.
1: Oh, man, there was a f- there are a couple of scenes where I, I guess because we had been reading the Bazan and like thinking about how Wells approached a sort of framing and e- editing. In sure. Kane, sure. Um, there were some scenes where it just so, felt so shonky and conventional, and unaware of like the flip side of the sort of critical tradition it was discussing. Because obviously, it's so it is a good reflection of the kale, but ugh, does that have to mean a complete rejection of like any sort of aesthetic ideal? <laughs>
0: I don't think so. It's all, like, shot, reverse shot the whole time, isn't it, pretty much?
1: Exactly so, exactly so. That is exactly what I mean.
0: With a couple of, like, West Wing walk and talk shots to to break it up a little bit.
1: There's a scene where someone is leaving the Victorville ranch and, like, Manx standing out there with, like, another character. I can't even remember one of the other characters. And it's like, so many extraneous shots to communicate, like, this departure. Sure. That had no meaning. Yeah.
0: Well, look man, this episode is by no means a uh, like Orson Welles filmography study, but I have no intention of making this a David Fincher filmography study, all right? I couldn't tell you what he's done for cinema that could even measure like 1% of what Orson Welles did for cinema in <laughs> in one film and this get guy, this guy's made like nine films, I think. You know he's a big fan of Zodiac. Uh Bong? Yeah. <laughs> uh my my dad <laughs> I, I, was, I think it's
1: okay i haven't seen social network and i don't really want to
0: it's all right have you seen uh gone girl yeah it's all I, right I, uh the girl with the dragon it. tattoo yeah the scandy version was better i thought the daniel craig one was terrible to be honest i think most of the benjamin button terrible i hate fight club yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> apparently alien 3 is a remake of the name of the rose but i haven't seen that since i was like a teenager I haven't seen that any. What? Yeah, supposedly. Dude, I don't that's think I've ridiculous. seen. I don't think I've seen any of his. I think I've seen all of his films once. Mank, I've seen one and a half times. So That's the only Fincher nice. film I've revisited at all. And I regret every second of it. Mm. He makes such surface level films, man. And they're so like uncritical and uninteresting. Even The Social Network, which I think most people would agree is like probably his best film of recent times. You could do so much more interesting stuff with telling this, like, true-life story. Whether it's a fiction source or, like, a piece of journalism as a source, he's so uninterested in, like, asking questions at the expense of, like, some cool editing and, like, some weird-looking <laughs> dig- digital cinematography. Maybe, like, stealing bits from Stan Brackage for Seven was, like him picking up and putting down, like, experimental film. But I couldn't tell you. <laughs> what do you mean? How so? The, like, scratching on the film stock is, like, all in the opening credits for Seven, and that's just, like, oh, I a see. lift from uh, Dog Star Man or whatever. Like, loads of bracket shit. But his films are just not interesting to talk about. There's nothing to them.
1: No, as I said, on an aesthetic and formal level, I, was ju- I just found it, like, egregiously bad, to be honest. Um, I found its thesis disagreeable. At the same time, it is ugh, successful in what it was trying to achieve, but I think what it was trying to achieve is really beige
0: revisionism. I hated the music for one from Trent. Can't remember it. Well, it's all like pastiche. Oh, it's, it's Trent. like um, Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like if they, it's like Sim soundtrack from the '30s or something. <laughs> Just rubbishly written. It's got nothing on like Lionel Hampton or like actual music from that time. Amanda Seyfried. I will say, I thought she was really, really good in this film, playing Marion Davis. I thought that was a really good performance. The only good performance... uh, Charles Dance is alright, but yeah. Yeah. Gotta give it to Amanda Seyfried.
1: Yeah, she she was great. And probably my favourite scene has her when she's, like, making a sort of fashionable exit from the studio. Never happened. And, yeah, (laughs) well... Obviously. didn't say it was real yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and Mank wants her to sort of come back to the lot to do some sort of negotiation we we won't even get into it um and she's like no i've already made my exit it's it's funny i i thought tom burke was did a pretty good awesome wells to be fair even though the representation of wells is problematic
0: didn't he get like maurice LaMarche, the voice of uh, calculon from futurama who's, like, a famous Orson Welles impersonator, and he appeared in Edward as Orson Welles. Didn't he get him to, like, read out his dialogue in the Orson Welles voice and then record that? I think that was, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because there was this thing where he's talking about, it was on the film program where he's like, well, you know, with the souvenir, (laughs) all the dialogue was improvised. So, you know, like, versus this where he spent, like, an hour on every syllable of his Oh, <laughs> well, that makes it so much worse to me. <laughs> but it's cool to see bearded Orson Welles as a young man.
1: <laughs> Wells is a peripheral figure in, in the film. Yeah. Um, you often, you don't really see much of his face or it's like very out of focus. Again, a strategy to distance, to sort of diminish his in- involvement in the writing stages, you know.
0: This is probably an egregious use of the word, but This is Wells' erasure, man. You know, like, the whole thing. And I hate it. Do you wish we could have gone to see it in the cinema straight after Citizen Kane? Because they were screening it. it
1: was, yeah, and it was, I think it was a packed house, man. It was obviously a big appetite to see it in the big screen. I think it, maybe it would have been more enjoyable on a big screen. Uh, I think I would have.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think it would have been less. It's enjoyed.
1: Netflix, isn't it? Like, if they wanted to put it on a big screen,
0: I would have loved to have seen the other side of the wind on the big screen.
1: Mm, yeah, I need to. I need to watch it.
0: <laughs> That's got a character based on Kale,
1: and Joseph McBride's in it, isn't he?
0: Yeah, he is. He acts in it. Joseph McBride wrote a brilliant review of this film that I recommend all of you folks check out. Um yeah. which is very based in both first-hand experience and. Source analysis. Two things that Jack Fincher um, (laughs) has nothing to do with. I feel like I've been too kind to this film. I feel like I had more fire in my belly when we were talking about like 1917 compared to this. But I really did hate it as much as I love Citizen Kane.
1: I think Indifference was the main takeaway for me
0: that's fantastic i'm pretty jealous you know <laughs> i wish i wish i didn't care i wish i was less of a loser and didn't spend quite a lot of the last like half a year pissed off about this film's existence but i did here i am in two years everyone's gonna have forgotten about mank and they'll still be watching citizen Kane for years ain't down. that the truth <laughs> maybe not maybe it's gonna win all the oscars maybe it'll be like the green book of this year oh i think it will win oscars
1: what else is gonna win? What else is gonna win?
0: WW84, man, come on! This is that. such
1: a self-congratulatory film
0: that they just won't be able to resist. Have you seen the artist?
1: I didn't actually
0: love that movie. Gets clowned yeah, on a lot. It looks good. Got a lot more to say about like film technique in Hollywood, even though it's just a straight rip-off of uh, "Singing in the Rain" with a bit of like Chaplin thrown in. It's way more pleasurable than this film, you know. It's a nice time, as well as being you know a film made for the Academy to feel good about themselves about Mm. and yeah I don't know we need the extended universe though (laughs) we need like Greg with two G's a film about Toland or whatever would be jokes not about the only other great thing that's happened in Victorville in the last hundred years the the writing of On Cinema season 10 which they wrote on the same ranch that Herman Mankiewicz wrote Citizen Kane on
1: yeah that is an amazing galactic confluence really isn't it (laughs) We're going to be back soon with our roundup of 2020.
0: Thanks for joining us for this one. I've really enjoyed recording it and revisiting Citizen Kane and Wells. I'm probably going to watch Citizen Kane again in the next couple of weeks. It's just a constant thing, really, Mm. for me.
1: If Mank hadn't come out, I wouldn't have watched Citizen Kane. So, yeah, I would have just kept putting it off.
0: Well, thank you, David Fincher, for finally uh, letting that happen. We've got one thing to be thankful for on this podcast. (laughs) You haven't heard the last of us talking about Citizen Kane. No way, Jose.
1: No way. (laughs) Or
0: or Orson (laughs) Welles, for that matter. But Citizen Kane is on iPlayer, as is the Magnificent Ambersons. So just fucking watch that shit. It's it's so good. If you're thinking of watching Mank... Yeah, we'll also link Too Much Johnson
1: as well, because it's definitely worth checking out as a sort of curio.
0: And we'll put a little bibliography in the episode notes because that worked quite well last time for the Anderson one, I'd say.
1: Hell yeah. Yeah, we're going to be back very soon with our roundup.
0: I've been Emmett. I'm sorry. Thanks for joining us. Lots of love.